Thanks, Cass. Well, last week we said hello to people younger than us, so I thought I'd turn it around. Hopefully no one's offended. Um, hopefully there were, I don't know, maybe some pleasant surprises, because if you weren't talked to, maybe everyone thinks that you're younger than you are, or something. I don't know. Anyway, it's good to be together, whether you're here with us in person or, or joining us um, online. You'll notice Hojo's not here with us today, David. Um, Terry, David is having a day off today. Um, David's injured himself, basically, and so he's uh, not very mobile at the moment. So he's, he's off for the time. So we can definitely be praying for him and praying for healing uh, in, in his back. That would be awesome, I'm sure, because, um, yeah, as he's not able to do much, he's no doubt going very stir-crazy. So uh, that's why he's not here, uh, but it is, it is legit. He's not just chilling with a cup of tea. Um, Exactly. So of course he's not, but that, that's all good. Hey, uh, and, and today too is um, then the last day of kids' church before, before school holidays start. And so um, over the coming weeks, kids will be in church with us uh, again. Um, this includes the, the little kids or, or the baby kids. You know, they, they won't be meeting during these uh, school holiday times either. So uh, kids will be with us. So that's not a reason not to come. Uh, families... Bring your kids, but just be prepared, basically, is what that means. Um, and because for all the challenges that it brings, I think we love having kids in, in our midst. We love having that next generation and, and hearing them and, and seeing them and having them amongst us. So, uh, that's, so be aware of that for the next few weeks as well. Tuesday morning, our newly revi- not revised, revived um, craft and social fellowship morning is happening again Tuesday morning 10 o'clock here at the church 10 till 12 be great to get along to that if you're into craft or into carpet bowls or into board games or even just into hanging out with other people and chatting and and catching up and connecting uh, that's an awesome opportunity for you to get on board with on on, on Tuesday uh, that would be be great um, uh, also, if you got the newsletter this week, um, within our Wacom team, our worship team, and I should say, Josh did an amazing job leading this morning. He, he leads often at night, and unfortunately, and he did restrain himself from saying this, when I asked him to lead this morning, I, I phrased it in the sense of we're desperate, but <laughs> Josh, you are far more than a, a desperate, you know, last minute, um, you know, last option. So maybe we'll see more of him leading uh, here in the mornings. Now it's public, Josh, so you have to. Um, But in terms of our worship ministry, we are having a songwriting collective meeting uh, on this Thursday night. If you read the newsletter, you'll see that it's scheduled for the 15th of October, but it's, well, there is one in October, but not then. It's the 15th of September, which is this Thursday night. So 7.30 uh, at the church office if you want to be a part of that. And you don't have to be a musician to, to be part of that. The idea of it being a collective is that we bring together our various gifts. So those who can play and those who can kind of create a melody and those who just are good with words um, and those who are good with theology and all that, that we all kind of bring our various gifts together. And it may not work, but it may, and it could be exciting. And in fact, our first one really was exciting. So there's, a, there's something, you know, kind of half underway. And so we'll see what happens and if they, they come here. So that's coming up too. 
Everything else, uh, as well as more details about stuff that I've said, is in the newsletter. And if you don't get the newsletter and you'd like to, it's by email, um, come and see me or one of the other staff uh, and we'll, we'll get you onto that. Um, I was planning to have print copies here, but I forgot, so um, I don't. Um, Having said all that then, let's get to the scriptures. We are in Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm going to ask Diane, who is going to come and read that for us. So Hebrews chapter 2, get your Bibles open, and we'll get into it. So it's Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm reading from the NIV. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2. Thanks, Diana. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word read to us. And as we come to it now in, in uh, coming to the preaching of it, we pray that we have ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us. There's so much that is in this passage. 
but we come to it with confidence that it's a living word and that you will take it and speak it to us. Guys, we come to, as your people, yes, we come around your word, but we come around each other as well. And so we think of David in particular today as he's uh, struggling and, and in pain. And we just pray, God, really for, for healing for him and a restoration um, and that you would minister uh, to him at, at this time. Uh, God, we really we pray for that. We pray to God for um, our world more in more general. And we think particularly of the big news of, of this week with the passing of, of Queen Elizabeth. And we thank you for her, her quiet and steady faith in you and the witness uh, of her character and life to others. And we pray for, for King Charles, God, as he uh, assumes the throne and all of what that means. Um, God, may... Uh, to the degree in which there is rule and authority still within that monarchy, we pray that he rules with wisdom and with insight, with, with grace and with compassion, with justice and with mercy, that he, he rules according to your kingdom. Uh, and, and God, we pray that not just for King Charles, but, but we pray that for our prime minister and for, for leaders of nations across, um, across the globe. We, we long for that day when your rule will be fully in, in place. Uh, and until then, God, we just pray that, that those who are in those positions would, would lead consistent with you. And so, God, as we are here as your people, we pray, speak to us and uh, minister to us in, in whatever way we need at this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But sometimes, sometimes you're struggling and you just need a friend to kind of come alongside you, don't you? I mean, you don't expect them to, to fix anything or to change anything because they can't. You know, they, they, they fundamentally are unable to do anything about it. But you just need them to, to really know and to understand what you're going through and to be with you in it and to then offer you, you know, the strength and encouragement to, to keep going. The issue is that sometimes our friends and our family, that they are not local. They don't live nearby. They can't just pop around for a cuppa. So it's a, it's a phone call, a text message or an email that communicates this to you in the moment. But then randomly, sometimes there's an actual letter in the mail. And a letter, though less immediate than those other means of communications, yet it says something more significant to us, doesn't it? Because it takes effort to send a letter. I mean, first, you need to find some paper. You need to find nice paper that you know, the kids haven't scrawled on or that doesn't have you know, corners bent up and all that kind of stuff because it's been shoved in, in a drawer. Like, so you need to find some paper. You need to write out the message by, by hand. Then you need to go on a hunt, first for the envelope, but then for the stamp, and then probably for a second stamp because it's been so long since you sent a letter that postage has gone up and the one stamp won't cover it, so you need to fish around until you can find a second one to stick on that thing as well. And then, then you need to find their actual address. I mean, you know where they live. You could drive there, you know, you, you know where it is, but the postie doesn't, and, and so you can't just, you know, put their name on it. So you need to hunt down their, their actual address to, to write on it. And then finally, this is still not done because you've then got to go to the effort to find a letterbox, a postbox somewhere for you to drop it off. And they're in random locations and who knows where they are, but so you need to go hunting for one of those as well. And so then when the letter finally arrives in a letterbox, you know that this person cares. 
because they've gone to, to such effort to get this to you. And I think this is somewhat similar to the experience of those who received the letter to the Hebrews. The writer says at the end of that letter that he's written my word of exhortation, that, that this is his word of encouragement to them. And he also says that he's written quite briefly, which makes me concerned about what a long letter would have been from him, given Hebrews is one of the, the longer ones in, in the scriptures. But knowing that, that these Christians were struggling, and without the means just to call them up or, or to just duck around, he's written this letter to them to encourage them, to, to bolster them up, to, to push and to pull them, to keep going in their faith, however, however hard it might be for them. And he does all this because Jesus is always worthy of our worship and of our faith. And this is true despite and in the midst of whatever we're going through because Jesus doesn't change. See, unlike our clothes that wear out and that need replacing, Jesus remains the same, he says in chapter 1. And he echoes it again in chapter 13 when he says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the unchanging Christ. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago when we considered worship in the midst of COVID and we looked at the example of Job then. But because Jesus doesn't change, he's always worthy of our worship and of our trust. However, how that looks will be different depending on if we're sinking or if we're walking on water. Our experiences don't change Jesus, but they change how we respond to him. And so like we saw last week in the example of Peter, when, when we're sinking, when we're going down, we can easily forget how great Jesus is. And so the writer to the Hebrews is seeking to remind them of this, to, to help them to turn their eyes from the wind and the waves that are going on around them, to turn their eyes from the struggles and persecutions and to look again at their great saviour. And so last week we saw from chapter 1, loud and clear, that Jesus is greater than the angels. For all that angels are absolutely incredible, for all that angels are you know, without equal and without compare, Jesus is yet greater still. And as we move into chapter 2, the writer springboards from this, his reflection on, on the angels to consider the great salvation that Jesus has achieved for us. And so let's, let's look at it together in the passage. I assume you've still got your Bibles open. We're going to read again just now from then verse 5 of chapter 2. And it says, It's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now we skipped the first couple of verses and we'll come back to them later. Because verse 5 kind of picks up from the end of chapter 1. There the writer has been talking about angels uh, and, and that continues in his reflection here. And he says these incredible things. 
thing, that, that it's not the angels who are going to rule over the world that is to come, but it's us who will. And he quotes Psalm 8. Uh, and in doing so, he writes about how humanity is made lower than the angels. You know, we're not as strong, we're not as mighty, we're not as wonderful, we're not as powerful and all the rest than angels are. So we're made lower than them. And yet, it says, that we are crowned with glory and with honour, with everything under our feet, with everything in submission to us. And this takes us back to what God intended for us in creation. See, in Genesis 1, we're told that we are made in the image of God. Now, that is not said of the angels. So though we may be lesser than them, we are yet in a way greater because we are uniquely made in the image and the likeness of God. And more than that, God gave us a command to rule over the earth and to have dominion. Under God, we were then the masters of our world. And so as the writer to the Hebrews says, God left nothing that is not subject to them. The world and everything in it was ours. But this does not align with our experience, does it? It doesn't align with the experience of those who this letter was written to, nor to us today. And the writer recognizes that. He is not in some fantasy land saying everything's okay when clearly everything is not okay. And so he says, yet at present, we don't see everything subject to them. He's honest about the reality of life. He names it for what it is. The world and our world is wildly out of control. We do not see everything subject to us. But we do see Jesus. And I think here, there's kind of an implied question. What are you going to fix your eyes and your attention on? The ways in which the world is broken or on the one who is making it right again? We do see Jesus. Jesus, who in every imaginable way is greater than the angels, yet was himself made lower than them for a time. And we see this Jesus now crowned with the glory and the honour that the psalmist is talking about. Now, how is it that he's received the glory and honour when wider humanity has not? Well, he answers that by saying, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We see Jesus, who has been crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. And this is the way of Jesus. It's through humility and humiliation that we come to glory. Going down is the way up. It's the cross that leads to a crown. And it's not just that, it's not just that Jesus died. I mean, after all, many people before him and after him have, have died. Now, his death was unique in that he tasted death for everyone. Paul writes to the Romans that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. This is what came to us through the one man, Adam. Death. But look at what he says comes to us through, through Jesus just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, which is Jesus' death 
on the cross on our behalf or in our place. So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Jesus was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. And in dying, he died for all, that we too then might experience his glory and his honour. And we see this then as the writer continues, verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not, afraid, not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. See, what Jesus has done he, through his death is that he brings many sons and daughters to glory. Now, we're not there yet. We don't see that in our experience yet. What we are, though, we are already God's children. And as such, we are brothers and sisters with Christ, and so we are co-heirs with him. But though we are children, unlike Jesus, we are not yet in glory. But we will be, because Jesus has made the way for us to be there. And he's done it through his death and his suffering. And so we have this incredible sentence for us to consider. It was fitting that God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, it was fitting that it should go this way. Remember last week in chapter 1, it says of Jesus, not only that he created all things, but that he then sustains all things by his powerful word. So think about this with me for a moment. A word. I'm doing lots of them at the moment. But it's, it's a mere breath. It's a movement of air. And in that, we could say it's weak and it's insignificant. But this least significant breath, but by this least significant breath of air, Jesus sustains all things. It's like the, the very weakest and the very least aspect of Jesus is yet powerful enough to, su to sustain our ever-expanding universe. The weakest thing sustains the biggest thing. It's incredible. And so then with this power at his fingertips, surely our salvation could have been achieved by mere word. If his word is that strong, surely he could have said something and we'd be right but the writers of the Hebrews says rather that it was fitting that it was right that it was appropriate and therefore that all other options were not it was fitting that Jesus suffer in achieving our salvation and when we realize that it says something to us about the significance of sin doesn't it that it can't just be wished away that a word can't just be spoken and our sin is dealt with. No, what needs to happen is that word needs to become flesh. And so we see, secondly, that, that Jesus was then made perfect through what he suffered. 
Now, Jesus was always perfect in a moral sense. He was always sinless. So it's not like his suffering was you know, like a, a furnace fire that burns away the impurities in, in, a, in a fine metal. Rather, here, the, the idea of perfect is about completion and fullness. Um, the Australian theologian Leon Morris likens it to, to like a, a flower and its bud. There, there is a perfection in the bud. I mean, it's, it's complete, it's whole, it's perfectly what it's meant to be. But then when it bursts open and becomes the, the flower, there's another perfection there. And this doesn't take away from the earlier perfection, but it, but it adds to it. It kind of completes it, if you like. And so Jesus, who was already and always perfect, was yet also made perfect in the way of the flower through his suffering. It, his suffering completed or, or perfected the, the process. It fully qualified him, as we'll see in a moment, for the role that he plays in salvation. And that role, thirdly, is to be the pioneer of it. The one who, who led the way and opens up the way for others. He's the way. He's the, the leader and the trailblazer. He's the one who goes before us. And so with him having opened the way for us, we can then go to be where he is, which is in glory with the Father. And so it is fitting that God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Then as the writer goes on, he affirms, again, from some Old Testament scriptures, Jesus' identification of us as his brothers and sisters. He then goes on to talk more about this pioneering work in salvation. Look at verse 14. It says that since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he, may, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I don't know if you're feeling it, but each of these paragraphs that, that I'm reading, they are just so full. There's, there's so much in them, and I feel like I can barely scratch the surface of them. But remember that the writer started this whole section flowing from his reflections of, of Jesus being greater than the angels. And he comes back to that initial prompt here by recognizing that it's not the angels who Jesus helps. If it was, then Jesus might have become an angel for their sake. But no, it says that he helps Abraham's descendants. Now, through this section, he's been talking about mankind and humanity in general. And here it seems that he focuses in on the Jews. And while it's true that Jesus was a Jew who came to the Jews to save the Jews, Scripture is clear that Abraham's true descendants are not just those of his bloodline, but those who, like him, hold on to the promises of God in faith. And so part of the radicalness of Jesus' message was that salvation wasn't actually just for the Jews, but rather that through them, it was for all people. And so then, because Jesus has come to help, not angels, but rather humanity, we're told that Jesus had to become like us. He shared in our humanity. 
He took on flesh and blood. He was made like us, fully human in every way, it says. So yes, Jesus is greater than the angels because he's God. And he became lower than the angels to be the pioneer of our salvation by becoming fully and completely human, both and at the same time. And it's as a human that he died, tasting death for everyone. And in so doing, he broke the power of sin and Satan and death. If he wasn't truly human, he couldn't really die. And then nothing would change for us. But in sharing in our humanity, he was able to become our, our mediator, our propitiator, and I'll explain that in a moment, and our helper. First, we see he's our, he's our mediator, a, a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Now, the role of the priest was to function as a bridge between sinful humanity on one side and, and a holy God. And as Hebrews shows time and time again, Jesus was perfectly able to fulfill that role. He in himself is the bridge that makes possible the way to God. And he does that by, secondly, being our propitiator. Now, if you're reading the NIV, it says that Jesus makes atonement for the sins of the people. If you have a more kind of literal word-for-word translation or just aware of stuff, uh, another word that can be used here for, for that phrase, make atonement, is the word propitiation. And what this word means is that the divine wrath that our sin warrants and that is coming our way um, has actually been fully met and diverted and put away by, by Jesus. So wrath was coming to us and it's like Jesus comes in and steps in front of us and he bears all that wrath upon himself and in him taking it, we're protected and we don't have to. And he fully absorbs it and directs it away from us. That's what propitiation means. It's what Jesus did for us. And so as a result, as Christians, we are then never under the wrath of God, but only under his love because Jesus bore that wrath himself. And so then thirdly, by his humanity, Jesus can be our helper. And he's able to help us because he's experienced life as we have, including it as tests and temptations. I mean, have you ever been helped by someone who has never experienced what your struggle is, who has no idea actually of what you're going through? And this is not to say this is not to say that you can't be helped. You know that, that that you can only be helped by people who have experienced the exact same thing as you have. It's not to say that that as all. But there's a different quality of understanding, isn't there? I mean, it's different to get diet advice from someone who has lost 40 kilos over the past two years and still has a way to go, than it is to get it from someone who's a size eight and eats whatever they want and never puts on weight. The, 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 kind of, the quality of the advice, the, the helping that you get is radically different in those two contexts. And so Jesus has suffered when he was tempted, just as we are. And so he's able to help us in that. In fact, an argument can be made that Jesus suffered even more than we do. Because think about this. We can resist a temptation the first time it comes to us. Probably even the second time. 
third time, uh, it's starting to push against us, but yet we can still resist. But fourth time, fifth time, sixth time, I had to think what came next, twelfth time, twentieth time, but by that point, we're overwhelmed and we give in because it, the, it just gets harder as it goes on. But Jesus never gave in to any of the multitude of temptations he faced. And so having resisted then, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Throughout all this passage, we see that Jesus is a greater salvation. He has made the way for us to be restored to what we're meant to be, to, to having dominion over the world, crowned with glory and honour, with no fear of death and with the great enemy of our souls that the devil defeated. And more than that, by, by Jesus blazing the way for us, we are then brought into the very family of God and we are loved by him and helped by Jesus to live consistent to that identity. This is a, a great salvation. So why would we go back to a lesser one? I mean, these first recipients, why would they go back to Judaism in order to fit in when Jesus is a, is a greater, full, complete, perfect salvation? To these first recipients, why would they go back to the flow of culture under Rome in order to avoid persecution when Jesus robs death of its sting and is a greater salvation? And there's no denying their struggle and their difficulty, not at all. But this letter is exhorting them in their struggle not to look at or to go back to a lesser saviour, but to keep holding on to the great salvation that they have in Jesus. And the encouragement is the same to us. Why look to a lesser saviour to help us in our troubles? Whether that saviour is you know, denial, friendship, sex, alcohol, shopping, saving, eating, whatever it might be. Why look to a lesser saviour? I mean, those things might have their, their place, but that place is always going to be lower than Jesus. So let's come back to, to the start of the chapter and the warning that we find there. Back at verse 1, then it says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So far we've looked at just these, these positive exhortations to keep our trust in Jesus. But here is a, a negative encouragement, if you like, in the form of a warning that comes to us. Because while Jesus is always worthy of our worship and of our faith, as the writer has been at pains to remind and to prove, that truth has implications for us. If we embrace this truth that, that Jesus is greater, then like Peter, as we saw last week, we'll be able to walk on the water. The storm is still there, but so is Jesus. 
And by keeping our eyes on him, keeping our lives focused on him, we will endure and be able to stay above the water. But if we ignore him, if we ignore the great salvation he brings to us, well, this says if, if the lesser message that had come through prophets and angels, if that had its just punishment for disobedience, well, then what hope do we have? What hope do we have to escape if we ignore the greater salvation announced by Jesus himself? And so to avoid this then, we need to pay the most careful attention so that we do not drift away. And I think it's the New Testament scholar Don Carson who says, we never drift towards holiness. We don't naturally drift towards Jesus. Our natural inclination, if we're not careful, is actually away from him, to, get drift, to drift and get pulled away by currents that lead us far from him. And it's not usually anything deliberate, but our, our anchor comes unstuck and we're pulled away by the current until we find ourselves where we never were meant to be. And so we need to keep our eyes on our anchor. We need to pay careful attention. Keep our eyes on our anchor. Is it Jesus? Jesus, who is the anchor for our souls, the rock we can build our lives upon, the fortress that we can run to. Because he's the only one who will keep us safe and will lead us home. Because he is a greater salvation for us. So let's come to him then now in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the great salvation that you have achieved for us. A salvation that robs death of its fear, that robs Satan of his power, that robs sin of its um, place in our lives. A salvation that is complete and full. We thank you, Jesus, that you are a great mediator, bridging the way between us and God, who we could never get back to by ourselves. We thank you that you're a great propitiator, taking all the divine wrath that was our due and bearing it yourself that instead we just receive God's love. We thank you that you are our great helper who has experienced all that we have and yet was without sin. And in that, you are then able to help us. You are a great salvation. You are the anchor for our souls. You are the bedrock on which we need to build our lives. And so, Jesus, we pray that we would not drift away from you, that we'd not be overcome by the things around us, that we'd not go back to a lesser saviour, but that we'd keep our eyes always on you, our living hope, and then the one who can keep us above the water. It's you we worship. It's you we put our faith and our trust in. May we live always um, looking to you. We pray it in Jesus' name.